Our scripture reading today is from Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for reading that passage of scripture. Good morning, everyone. It's a great delight for me to be here with you. As um, I was introduced earlier, uh, my name is Paul Lim. I, this is my second or third time uh, speaking here in Cool Springs. I do uh, mostly monthly at the Old Hickory uh, location. Um, so it's a great delight to open the word of God with you. I came back from a conference at 1 o'clock in the morning today. So... <laughs> So I was in Denver, and, you know, it snowed in Denver a couple of days ago. There, you know, I don't know, five, six inches of snow. So I was afraid that I may not make it back. So I was thinking, do I text Russ early? Like I was thinking yesterday, do I let him know that TS? But I decided I'll put my trust in the Lord. I believe, help my unbelief. And then here we are today, so it's a great delight. So uh, if you're willing and able, let's pray uh, once again, and we'll look to the word. Gracious and glorious God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your triune glory that has made everything in this world. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts will remain restless until they find their ultimate rest in you. And to satisfy our longings and to redirect our gaze, we have come into this house. May this worship be acceptable to you, not because of any performance that we do musically, homiletically, or just presence-wise, but because of the one and perfect performance of Jesus throughout his life. And may that be the reason for our joy today. In your name we pray. 
Amen. Um, so um, I was teaching this book earlier this semester. It's a book entitled How God Becomes Real, Kindling the Presence of Invisible Other. It's uh, by this uh, anthropologist at Stanford University named Tanya Lurman. And her, it's a very, very fascinating book because she, as a secular anthropologist, is really interested in how God becomes real to people. So let me ask you this question. How real is your God? And how do you make sure that God remains real in your life? She has an opinion. I'm glad she does, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this book, How God Becomes Real, talks about what Christians do to experience and continue to believe that God is real. How real is your God has a lot to do with the type of embodied practices we attend to regularly. Meaning this, let's say you're an art history student and you go to a museum or you come to Christ Pres Cool Springs to get, I mean, like this is one of the few churches, Protestant churches that I know that I, you can just look around and see these beautiful artworks that are, you know, though not original, but they, are, they give you a sort of a very, very close approximation of the original in a way that kind of makes you think about, okay, like, what are they doing to me and for me? I mean, I want you to think about that. Look around some of the art. I mean, I love the, 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 the Ozawa Turner outside. And, you know, just, and a lot of these work, like, what do they do for you and to you? What are the purposes of art museums, one might ask? I'm not trying to be, like, nerding out here, but, like, thinking about, like, what, what the spaces that we go to, things we do, it is important for us to ask every once in a while, why are we doing this? Like, why, why do we get up and grab a cup of coffee and get here by 8.30? Um, what are these words about? What are these songs about? What are these genuflections or genuflections of the heart or body? What are they really signifying? What do they really accomplish? That's what this book, uh, How God Becomes Real, really hit home for me. And, and, and really kind of, and I teach at a secular university in, in, in a very progressive divinity school as an evangelical. And my heart, my heart's desire is to really introduce something more real and substantial by way of introducing the God of Jesus Christ to the class. So let me ask you this question. How real is your God this morning? You know, our church is a PCA church. That means we take the Reformed faith seriously, the gospel of Jesus Christ very, very seriously. So then, for you individually, as you're sitting here encountering this moment together, as I'm listening, uh, as I've listened to the word, as I'm here to proclaim the word, how real is this God of um, Jesus that we see right here? And can this God, uh, real God of yours, speak to and disrupt and redirect and challenge any and all areas of our life and existence. Let me say that again. So how real is your God? That question can be answered in this way. Can your God really redirect, disrupt, challenge, and speak to any and all areas of your life, existence, and journey? Are there certain areas that you say, no, no, God cannot speak to this because I got this. It may be my relationships, it may be my identity, it may be my finance, it may be my future, it may be my present, it may be my past. Whatever it is, I want us to kind of wrestle together because as David Peterson wrote this very, very interesting book called Worship as Wrestling with God. Worship is kind of wrestling with God as you kind of, as God graciously invites you to himself in this liturgy of the word. So for the remainder of our time today, I'd like for all of us to encounter these words I believe, help my unbelief. And ask ourselves this question. What if, any, what if 
um, you know, what did these words mean to the father of the demon-possessed boy? Then and only then, we'll ask the same for ourselves. What do these words mean to us today? So I'm inviting you to travel with me to the first century. The text, as you're listening very carefully, this is a strange text. We encounter things that we don't normally encounter. Not in the sort of a, 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 as, as a regular phenomenon of the day. We don't normally see a boy, likely teenage boy, possessed by a spirit that causes him to, to, not, to, to be unable to speak. And so that's strange. But then when you actually think about the word of God, we have to actually recognize this very important fact. We have a sin of commission. We, we commit the sin of normalizing the word, like making the, the, the Bible as if it's like just happening to us every day. Therefore, it does, we don't really allow the strangeness of the word to speak really powerfully and poignantly into our situation. For example, since I'm assuming most of us may not believe that you know, evil spirits can be cast out in the way that maybe some of you do, but like, if that is where you are, then what do you do with this word? We kind of read it and don't know what to do with it, and we just latch on to things that we know, and that's how I do it. So then I want us to really be invited to the presence of God, the, the, the God who gave us the word, and to really wrestle with what he has to say here. So the setting of this gospel narrative might strike us as somewhat surreal, if not unreal, for many of us, as I said. This, uh, uh, this story turns out to be one of my favorite gospel stories because, at least for me, this story encapsulates and compresses my life journey as someone who identifies with the life of the, and work of Jesus as Christ's follower. Particularly these words, I believe, help my unbelief. If someone were to ask me, hey, Paul, what are, what, what are some of the verses in the Bible that really characterize your faith and your journey? I'll say this, I believe, help my unbelief. In this story, we find these six actors on the stage. We find Jesus, we find his disciples, we find his, the crowd, we find the father of the boy, we find the boy, and we also find the evil spirit. So we'll explore the, the, the following three points briefly today. They are, one, challenge of Jesus, second, chaos, even with Jesus, three, comfort of Jesus, okay? So we're going to talk about challenge, chaos, and comfort. And they actually, if you think about those three words, challenge, chaos, and comfort, you might say, that's sort of my day. I have challenges in the morning, I have chaos in the afternoon, I have comfort at night, <laughs> Comfort may come by way of nice dinner or after dinner a drink or your Netflix show, whatever it is. So challenge, chaos, and comfort. Okay, can you remember those three words? Challenge of Jesus, chaos even with Jesus, and comfort of Jesus. So if you were to look at the placement of this narrative in, in, in Mark 9, the story takes place right after the fabulous account of the transfiguration of Jesus, which is one of the highest points of the earthly ministry of Jesus. Therefore, in certain uh, liturgical traditions, especially in the Eastern Orthodox and Catholic traditions, this Feast of Transfiguration marks one of the three high points of Jesus' work, baptism, transfiguration, and resurrection, so, and crucifixion and resurrection. So now let's think about the positionality of this story. So for John, Peter, and James, this is one of the most unforgettable highs for the disciples, they are taken to the mountain with Jesus, and there on the mountain, Jesus is transfigured. 
dazzlingly white and they didn't know what to do with it. Like this, you know, it's like, I guess sometimes the light shines on you really powerfully and there is a reflected glory from that light on your face and around you, sort of a halo. But like it just, and this is nothing that James, Peter, and John had ever seen before in their life. So, and they come from that mountain. And, and so right after that, they encounter a situation where pandemonium and, and not peace of God seemingly reigns supremely. Having a spectacular religious experience is no vaccine against the onslaughts of virus of life of confusion, chaos, tragedy, and pain, the kind of stuff we, we all wish we didn't have to face or undergo or succumb to. So the first point is the challenge of Jesus. So Jesus is now returning with James, John, and Peter, the three core disciples. So he had kind of inner ring, the innermost ring, and outer ring, and outermost ring, and in terms of his followers, right? So the three core members of James, John, and Peter. He go, they go up with Jesus, and so now there are nine others, and, and some others as well. They're kind of doing their milling about, doing their thing, while their teacher is away. And something happened. Something happened that is... Uh, a man brought his son because now at this point there is a real kind of a, a, a growing uh, reputation of Jesus in such a way that people are really amazed at his teaching and really spellbound by his ability to cast out demons and feed the hungry. And if you read uh, before uh, chapter 9, in chapter 8, we encounter Jesus feeding the 4,000. Chapter 7, we hear about Jesus healing a deaf and mute man. And then we also, in, in chapter 6, we read about Jesus walking on the water. And then we also read about Jesus feeding the 5,000. And so on and so forth. And then in chapter uh, 4, we read about Jesus raising a dead girl and heals a sick woman. So throughout, so Mark has a very clear intention. Mark's intention as he wrote this gospel is to really demonstrate, you know, in, in a clearest way that Jesus really is the Messiah. Jesus really is the one who's going to usher in the kingdom of God, usher in the shalom of God. And we also need to remember that the gospel of Mark was written, and in this context, Roman Empire was the biggest thing around. And the part of Jesus and the followers of Jesus, they're basically part of a group of people that were dispossessed. They didn't have a lot of national dignity or pride. They were actually squashed people. And Jesus came from that you see what I mean? So he's not from the most powerful family. He's not from the most prominent country. He wasn't well educated. He didn't have the right zip code, if you know what I mean. And here is somebody who's going around and really speaking to a lot of people who are basically marginalized. Let's be honest. If you had a demon-possessed uh, son, most people in our society will not say, like, okay, you're now the, the kind of person that we want to, like, you know, listen to your, your tweets and, and kind of pay attention to you whenever you speak. No, they'll be on the margins. We, we wouldn't know what to do with them at one level. At another level, if that problem persists, we'll just kind of leave them out there. And I do think that's very important and instructive for us to think about that. Jesus really goes to the margins. And we want to also think about our movement patterns. Do we go to the margins or do we go to the center? Right? Margins are where the powerless are. Centers are where the powerful are. I don't know about you, but, you know, I go to these conferences, this annual conference, and, and you know, I've been going through this about 25 years. And, you know, they give you a name badge. And the, I, I, every, there were about 14,000 people there in Denver at the convention center. And, and, you know, about 10 years ago, I stopped wearing my badge because I realized that this is what we all do. We all look at people's name badges. What do we look at? We look at their names, but what's more important is where they work at. 
Yes, you're laughing because I think you know what I'm talking about. And, and quickly we decide, is that person worth talking to or not? You see what I mean? And, and so it's, it's really, I, I, I just came to realize, you know what? I have a tendency, and we all have this tendency, that we kind of move toward the center because they're the, they're, that's where the popular, prominent, powerful people are. Jesus' movement pattern is he went to the margins. He went to the nameless. He went to the demon-possessed. He went to the losers. He went to the prostitutes. He went to the tax collectors. And this is one of those really powerful stories where we, we see that. And, and as, as Christ followers, we need to overcome our natural habit and habitat. I need to overcome my natural habit and habitat because I move to the center. And the Spirit is telling me, Paul, you move to the margin. You follow Jesus. If you really follow Jesus, you really need to really kind of check your movement patterns in your life. The challenge of Jesus is this. He comes and he realizes there is a whole pandemonium going on. And he asks, what's going on here? And then, and then look at in verse 20. Um, the father is desperate, right? He says, I brought my son to your to you, but you weren't here, so I thought your, father, your, your, your students could handle this problem, and I realized they can't handle the problem uh, because it has thrown my son to the ground. And so in, in verse 20, as soon as the Spirit sees Jesus, it threw the boy to the ground, convulsing and foaming at the mouth. Imagine yourself to be the parent. Imagine yourself to be the mother or father. You have the son that, that you love. And you may not have known, it may not have been a congenital problem, probably not a congenital problem, but it developed. And then this, is, this, this has not left. This is seemingly incurable, but you hear that there's a powerful and charismatic teacher named Jesus. You're going to go to this guy. He's not there. His, his followers cannot do a dang thing. So you're now at your wit's end. And then here comes Jesus. That's why you read about people running to Jesus. They're excited and says, hey, and Jesus says, what's going on? And the father says, if you could do anything, anything at all, please have pity and help us. And here comes the challenge of Jesus, which is sometimes in a lot of ways kind of misconstrued, right? And he says, he says what do you mean I can? If I can, of course, all things are possible for those who believe. This does not mean that no one will die if you believe in Jesus. This does not mean that all your problems will go away if you follow Jesus. Because, in fact, when I became a Christian at age 21, more problems started to arise. Like, you know, I thought like my life was going great, and then after I became a Christian, like, whoa, I lose friends and my perspective on life. And, and so, what he does mean, however, in this text, he's first and foremost speaking, his, uh, Mark is recording this account as a way of illustrating who Jesus is and what he has done and what he's doing even for us. So let me, let me ask you this question again. If you had been in that situation... You bring your son, you bring your child, demon-possessed, and you're kind of at your wit's end. You've tried everything, and nothing has worked. Even now, you bring your son to Jesus, and, and your son is looking terrible. He's convulsing, he's foaming at the mouth, and you just don't know what to do. Imagine yourself there. And I mean that. Imagine. Put yourself there. And Jesus says, all things are possible for those who believe. What would you have said? You know, whatever else it means, how would you have responded? I mean, like, whatever else it means, it means that the Father recognized and confesses two crucial things, not just for him, but for our faith journey, too. But I want us to also think about how this Father said. He didn't have a lot of time to think about this. Jesus says this, and it's almost like a knee-jerk reaction. The Father was not in a religious studies seminar or a covenant seminary classroom. 
No, it was not in a serene context either. There are lots of people around. Your son's foaming at the mouth, and Jesus, this teacher, charismatic teacher and powerful teacher says something, and you're just having to respond. Right? I mean, that's exactly what is happening. And it says, you know what? Everything is possible for those who believe it. Immediately, Mark writes in verse 24, the boy's father exclaimed, I believe, help my unbelief. For this guy, and this is like, I, I'm so thankful that this story got preserved and got recorded because for me, this verse, and I'm being totally serious, without, this verse more than any other verse spoken by any human being aside from Jesus provides far more comfort for my everyday journey of faith. Because my everyday journey is not often marked with faith, but not marked by belief, but unbelief. So here's why I find it so fascinating. For this person, this father, it is not an easy modernistic reductionistic binary of either belief or unbelief. He's not that, right? He's not saying, I believe and I don't have any other problem. Nor does he say, oh, I can't believe this and I'm just going to walk away. He says, I believe, but there are just so many things about what you just said that I don't understand or don't even believe. So the father says, I believe, but I got a problem. I have a problem of unbelief. But guess what? There's no one else who can help solve that problem. Not my son, not your, not your followers, not the crowd, certainly not the you know, evil spirit. So I'm coming to you. See, to me, that is at the core of our confession of need. The father saw right away that, you know what? I see that there's nobody else who can solve this problem. But I don't even know. I mean, I, I think you're great, but I haven't seen the future yet. And that's why he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. See, in that moment, your exclamation and confession of faith, we see a beautiful, beautiful digest of what it means to really hear the challenge of Jesus. The creator and the redeemer and the lover, the triune God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit challenges us in our life situations. But these challenges are invitation to a greater encounter with God. These challenges of God are invitation to a greater encounter of God. So Jesus is inviting the father of the, the, the spirit-possessed boy. And so we go to the second point then, the chaos, even with Jesus. Verse 26. All right, so, so the father exclaims, and then follow with me in verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene. So imagine, you're now hearing, okay, there's something spectacular going on. And they're like, okay, we're going to go check this out. And they're running toward where Jesus and the Father and this convulse, you know, there's convulsion going on. And so Jesus says, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Verse 26, the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he is dead. All right, let's, let's park our minds right there. The point is, chaos, even with Jesus, all right? So, this is really a very, very significant challenge because Jesus rebukes the spirit, right? And then notice what the crowd says. The boy looked like, I mean, so the spirit left, and the interpretation of those around them was what? He is, I can't hear you, dead. Dead. He's dead. All right? Now, we have the benefit of knowing the story already. Okay? Right? So let's put ourselves in that situation. You're there. You're, you're the mother or the father. Okay? Jesus does something. He says, okay, come out of him. 
Spirit leaves. And so it seems like it, the Spirit left, but people are saying, so Jesus said, come out. Something happened, and the interpretation of the mass of people says what? The guy's dead. Okay? We don't know the future yet, okay? If you're there, how would you felt? I mean, you expect a tr- spectacular deliverance, and, and your boy's dead? Can you imagine the shock of this father? Dude, I brought my suffering son to the one who's supposed to be able to handle all things. What disappointment this must have been. Chaos, even with Jesus. Right? I mean, okay, you might say, Paul, Paul, don't, 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 don't be so overly dramatic. We know how the story ends. Yes, but they didn't. And that's the point. In our life journey, the Lord knows how your story will go and end, but they don't. I mean, we don't. Do you know how your tomorrow is going to go? Do I know what, what's going to happen to me at 4 p.m. today? I think I know. I have plans. Do my plans always happen? Do your plans always happen according to your plan? I don't know about you, but I have my you know, phone, and I dutifully write down the to-do list. I don't know about you. If I have about seven things to do, if I get about five of them done, I'm a very, very proud man. And these are like mundane things every day. Then, then the grandiose plans. So, okay, chaos even with Jesus. Let's think about that. Chaos even with Jesus occurred not just to him, but it has happened to all those whose stories God in Christ identified with. All of us. Chaos even with Jesus. I don't know about you, but after I've done some you know, virtuous deeds of hospitality, generosity, and even sacrifices, sometimes what follows thereafter might be some of the most calamitous circumstances of life. The most spectacular thing of your beloved son's life is to have this evil spirit leave, and yeah, the spirit left all right, but now your son's dead. I mean, so let's, let, let's, let's go there right now. Imagine you are, you, your son was foaming. Now he's not foaming anymore. He was moving and shrieking, but he's not shrieking and convulsing anymore. And people are saying the guy's dead. The heart of the father that has sunk. Chaos even with Jesus, not something we only read about in Mark 9. So we say with the Father, I believe, help my unbelief. That confession of faith was needed not just when Jesus challenged him in the first time around, but especially now. He needed even more, as they are saying he's dead. He needs to say, I believe, help my unbelief. You said my son will be all right. You said all things will be possible, and then now my, my son's dead. So, so teacher, I believe, help my unbelief. So when I was a small boy, I was in fact nine years old. This is my first encounter of public drunkenness. It wasn't me. It wasn't me, but I was nine and I was coming back from my school. I was walking back from my school and I was, it was a kind of rainy day. It has a kind of drizzly day, mid-afternoon in Seoul, Korea. Walking up the hill and there's a four-way intersection. There was an electronic store uh, on my right, and I can still vividly remember it like it was yesterday. And I see, so at the four-way intersection, a little bit about 100 yards to the right, I see some big object in the middle of the road. Middle of the road. And I, I, you know, and, and I'm 55, so I'm talking about 46 years ago. And I see a man in the middle of the road passed out. And I go there, and I think, and, and I distinctly remember, and I don't know why I went there, but like I, I felt instinctively I needed to go and check this out, right? So as a nine-year-old boy, 
I, didn't have, I hadn't learned uh, that aphorism, stranger danger. So I go there, look at this man reeking of something that is pungent. And I kind of intuitively knew that that's not something I normally do. So, I, I, I read, so this is what I did. The police station, you know, is about, well, it was about half a mile away, maybe three quarters of a mile away. I ran. I ran as fast as I could. And I ran to the station and told them that, hey, there is somebody who's passed out in the middle of the road. And the police guy said, like, yeah, don't worry about it. I said, no, what do you mean don't worry? Like, there's somebody in the middle of the road. And the police officer thought I was a really nice boy. I said, okay, now you can go home. We'll take care of this. I went home, and I didn't think anything. And now, that same night, so that's the first recollection I have of public drunkenness, but also first concrete remembrance of something I've done that was really good and virtuous and hospitable. As a nine-year-old boy, I saw somebody drunk. I ran to the police station, not to report him and get him locked. No, just get him some help. That evening, my mom told us that my, our, our father, my dad, was not going to be home for a while. In fact, that was the night that he was incarcerated. My dad had been kind of a charged as a political prisoner when I was nine years old, and for the next three years, he'd be in and out of prison. So my life was wrecked, as you can imagine. So now, really strange juxtaposition, isn't it? My first remembrance of doing something virtuous and good and hospitable, and then my father is thrown into jail. Now, God, in his perfect knowledge and orchestration of life events, made those things kind of side by side. Chaos. Even, so even after I became a Christian, I was thinking like, why would God do that? And maybe this, chaos, even with Jesus. I mean, there's, there's these life circumstances that simply don't make sense to you. Like we, I mean, for this father at that moment, and momentary confusion, yes, I know. Momentary chaos for sure, but it was chaos. It was confusion. Momentary, yes, but because all of our moment, I mean, Paul says, all our momentary troubles and afflictions are nothing compared to the great surpassing greatness of knowing Christ and what will be revealed to us later on. But he says, these are momentary, but these are real afflictions and sufferings. So let's jump ahead to the third and the final point, the comfort of Jesus who truly embodies faith, verses 27 through 29. Jesus, at this point, right, they're saying, okay, he's dead. What, what, what does Jesus do? Jesus took him by the hand. And here's the point. I think Jesus could have easily yelled out and, hey, stand up. Show me what you got. And I want you to also think about this. He's, he's kind of emerging as a kind of a, a teacher and a powerful figure and a religious leader. And in this Jewish culture of first century context, a religious leader does not touch a corpse. Most people do not touch. So, and this is a very beautiful point of the, the beauty of the incarnation. God did not just from a you know, heavenly glory and say like, hey, why don't you all figure this stuff out? What's wrong with you? Run harder. You know, like, no, God became one of us. And here in this story, but Jesus, it says, okay, they were saying, your son's dead. And Mark says, but Jesus. And I love those but Jesus moments in my life and, and your life. When people say you're gone and you're lost and you're up to no good, but Jesus. When you feel like I'm not going to amount to anything, my family is a shambles and I'm just whatever, but Jesus. I love it, love it. Whereas others are crying out he's dead, but Jesus. When human circumstances get so bad that everyone around us is rightly or wrongly saying it's all over, but God, but Jesus. 
I don't know about you, but the comforting presence of Jesus, who does not take off on you, is the real beauty of this passage. He takes him by the hand, and he lifts him up, right? And then he stood up. And so we go to the next, I mean, so right, right there. I don't know about you, but like Cyril of Alexandria is a 4th century Christian who lived in Alex, um, Alexandria, modern-day Egypt. And he said that it would be a disaster, he says, only to think about the divinity of Jesus. Cyril was a stout defender of the divinity of Jesus. He says Jesus is absolutely God the Son. But he says, for our journey of life, it is also very, very crucial to remember the full humanity of Jesus who fully believed in the truthfulness and trustworthiness of the one who sent him. In other words, he, Cyril writes about this, Jesus is the one who was really the only one who was full of the Holy Spirit at all times. Paul writes in Ephesians, be filled not with spirits, but be with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the, one who, the, the only one who in his earthly life as a full human being, who was fully in communion with God the Father through God the Spirit, so that he was truly full of spirit. So he fully believed in the truthfulness and trustworthiness of God. Here's Jesus who, in believing that this was not a case of mission drift, holds him by the hand and lifted him up. Not a word, but a gentle touch and use of his power to lift up a boy who was exhausted and, in fact, declared dead. Oh, the comfort I derive from this passage. Others are saying this dude is dead. Jesus, but Jesus picks him up. And here's a fascinating exchange, and I'm wrapping things up now. Why couldn't we do it, the disciples asked. And Jesus said, this kind can only come out through prayer. So the comfort of Jesus is not only that he does spectacular miracles, but he's also instructing his followers and future generation of followers what it means to really kind of experience and, and encounter and journey with the real God. How God becomes real in your life. He says, this kind can only come out through prayer. What does that mean? What is prayer? And there are multiple, multiple definitions of prayer throughout centuries, throughout regions. Prayer, among others, for the communities that were found, formed around the memories of the acts of Jesus, they took as kind of, you know, uh, fundamental the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus is not dead, he's alive. And while Jesus in ministry, he taught, he taught those around him that they should pray in the name of Jesus. I want you to pray in my name. And that's a pretty audacious thing to claim. Because first century Jews were not praying in anyone else's name. They were praying to Yahweh. Usually just that. I mean, and we praise you, O Lord. So they would invoke the name of the Lord. They would invoke the name of the, the, the Lord of all. But this is what happened. He says, I want you to pray in my name. So what's in that name? Right? Just as the advent of Jesus was for the faithful Israelite, Simeon, the consolation for Israel. We read about that in the Gospel of Luke in the first couple of chapters. So the entire life of Jesus was for the consolation of and comfort for the world. How does Jesus comfort or console us? He has given us prayer as a way of communicating and communing with and restoring our mindfulness, our purpose, through which we get to be caught up in the vision of God for the world. Prayer is not only bringing our needs to God, but also daring to see things through and in God's eyes. Like, I want to see things as you, I mean, wouldn't that be cool, right? I mean, it's almost like, and I was, um, have you done, uh, have you put on the, the virtual reality, like the, the VR sets? 
and you play games and it's like, okay, mind-boggling stuff. Like, it's like, whoa, you put this on and you're like, whoa, kind of, there's a momentary disorientation. Like, you put it on and say, whoa, what's happening here? It's, I think, have you ever, so what I'm inviting you to this prayer is really joining in the, in the kingdom work of God. We have our needs. We have our, 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 our problems and our, all of that, and we bring them to God. But if we just see it as just checking off our ch- shopping list for the things we need for this world, and we just need this vending machine called prayer that will get what we need, then we are really selling ourselves short in terms of understanding what prayer is. Prayer is more than anything else joining God in seeing through God's eyes and to join God in the kingdom building work of God and communing with God, being one with God. That's the invitation of God for us. One of my uh, favorite living theologians is Dr. Sean Copeland, who taught at Boston College for quite a while. Um, uh, Copeland's book, Knowing Christ Crucified, The Witness of African-American Religious Experience, is one of the books that I really recommend to a lot of new, new students. I'd like to quote something from Dr. Copeland here. Copeland writes, The appearances of the risen Lord to the disciples remind us that the resurrection is not primarily about the sight of Jesus, although that is crucial, but for us now, it is rather about the insight into his mission. So the resurrection not only demonstrates that he rose from the dead, But equally as important is it gives us an insight into the mission of Jesus. Real transformative encounters with the risen Lord, these appearances redefine for us just what it costs to live the way of Jesus. To confess him as the absolute meaning of life for the world, absolute meaning for the life of the world. At the same time, the death of Jesus discloses God's own struggle and ultimate victory against the powers and principalities of this world and manifests his desire to emancipate those who are ensnared in sin and bondage. The crucified Jesus is a sign of the cost of identification with poor, outcast, abject, and despise women and men in the struggle for life. Jesus incarnates the freedom and destiny of discipleship. One of my dear friends, Caleb, had an opportunity, I guess once in a lifetime opportunity, to sit down with the current Pope Francis for about two and a half hours. He and about 20 other leaders from America went with some of the Catholic bishops in his in the Pope's uh, private residence, and he, was, he said he was really surprised. The furniture was not really always matching. The artwork wasn't that great. And because Pope Francis is Jesuit, he really kind of embodies the, 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 the poverty as one of his vows. And they got to kind of have two and a half hours with him, like no agenda, just ask me questions and we'll think together. And, and Pope said to them, look, I'm not your Pope. We, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus. Let's try to think about these issues in the name of Christ. So my friend Caleb and his wife Lydia asked this question, apparently, and, and I was with them yesterday. He said, um, they asked, our world is broken and our systems and structures are broken too, in many, many ways. So how would you fix it? <laughs> and Pope Francis said, yeah, that's a great question. And, and was, but he says, and there are all these questions like that. 20 people asked 20 questions. And Pope's, the Pope says they also came back to these three things. And, and he says, and my friend Kev said, yeah, you know, he answered like, but they, they all came back to the same three points. And what are the three points I asked? And he said, well, one, he said, God can do anything he wants. You have to affirm God's sovereignty. And then two, Francis said, we have to develop the ministry of the ear. Ministry of the ear of listening. Listening firstly to God and the word of God but also listening to those 
on the margins especially. You see, Jesus encountered this father whose son had been spirit-possessed. And I'm telling you, let's be honest. If you knew a neighbor whose son was spirit uh, demon-possessed, that wouldn't be the first couple that you would invite to your dinner party, would that be? Right? And it goes on and on and on. They become marginalized. Pope Francis said, listen to God and also listen to those on the margins. And three, sit silent and actively wait on God to speak to you. So there's a sitting and waiting. So you, you listen to the word of God, read the word of God, but also in your prayer life, just, just sit and, and actively wait on the Lord. Then and only then get up and go and do. These are apparently what Pope Francis said to my dear friend Caleb. And I want us to kind of think about that. Like, what does that mean to really kind of develop the ministry of the year? I, as a teacher, I, as a preacher, I, that's my weakest point. You know, and, like, and I was trying to do a little bit better, you know, at the conference. I was, like, trying to be more mindful, like, listening to people. I think I got about 60% listening, 40% speaking, right? But I need to do maybe more. I don't know. But, you know, the, the, the point of this whole message is this. I believe, help my unbelief. One of the most impactful verses from my life journey, and I think for many that I know, toward their, our journey to ultimate home. God becomes more real to me. And to us, by way of, I'll call Ryle, recognition, invitation, listening, and expansion. Recognizing, we must recognize and become more conscious of the presence of God, the purposes of God, that God is real. And we need to also invite God to walk with us as we say, I be HMU. I believe, help my unbelief. And also listen, listen to God, listen, to, listen for God, especially among the marginalized in our communities. And E, expansion. Expand your horizon of who is my neighbor, especially in this time of holidays and Thanksgiving. Because as you know, holidays can be really, really lonely time for many people in our communities, starting right here at Cool Springs and beyond. So may the Lord continue to give us his insight, and may, become, may, may God become more real to us, especially as you're about to receive the Eucharist or Sacrament of Communion. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you. We thank you that you're ever near us and with us in Jesus Christ. While they were saying he's dead, you raised him. You took him by the hand and raised him to his feet. Lord, we want to encounter that. We have encountered it just now by listening and reading and engaging with the text, behind and in and in front of the text is a risen Christ, whom we adore because he has loved us first. We come to you, O Lord, to the table. May you satisfy our deepest longings. In your name we pray. Amen.